Welcome to another edition of the eSpot with Camille. The eSpot is your location for the latest in entertainment, beauty, and design from the people who make it. Thanks for joining. Okay, okay. I got way too into it because it's been such a long time since I have been back live and... Thank you all for joining me. Make sure right now, go ahead and share with your friends, share on your social media platforms, because right now we are live on LinkedIn, YouTube, and my other favorite, Facebook. So go ahead and get into the comments. Let us know where you're watching from, what platform you're watching from, so I can get a better idea of which platforms I need to pay more attention to. Hello. And also to just say hi, so I know you're watching. So first things first. I am so excited about the guest I'm getting ready to have. She used to work for Apple, but we'll get into that. So we will be discussing all the things. And today we are having an important conversation about the importance of diversity, equity, and inclusion in media, entertainment, workplace, and schools. We will be discussing how to embrace diversity, equity, and inclusion, and how it can positively impact all of our lives, our communities, and society. I am your host, Camille Cower, and my guest will be joining me is diversity, equity, and inclusion expert, Yvonne Jackson. Yvonne is Apple's former DEI operations expert at Black at Apple Talent Lead, and thank you so much for joining us and sharing your expertise. I uh, can't wait for this conversation. Hey. Hi there, Yvonne. <laughs> I'm, I have so to go I'm going to call you Yvonne because that's my mom's middle name, but it's Yvonne, I know. Yes, I, I, won't, I won't judge you. <laughs> I get it from my mom. All right, so let's just jump right into it. Um, I think it's important for everyone to know exactly what is, uh, what was your position, what is DEI, and what you're currently doing with DEI as well. So I want to first off make sure that everyone understands how do you define diversity, equity, inclusion, commonly known as DEI? Right. So everyone calls it something different. It's DEI, it's DEIB, it's IMB. It's just all these acronyms right now because they all mean something honestly different. Um, I know it's diversity, equity, inclusion, but really what I like to focus on is the equity part because that's the outcome that we want to see. And it's not equality because equality means that, you know, we all started from the same you know, starting point, right? And we know, depending on our race, gender, and so forth, that may not be our reality. But what equity does, it allows us to get people moving, having the same opportunities, providing access, and making up for those late starts that some individuals may have had based upon being historically marginalized. So um, I look at it as a way to build belonging, uh, build trust, and honestly help businesses do good business because diversity <laughs> is is instrumental to their success and their growth. And I think a lot of times when people talk about diversity, they only think of certain groups. They don't realize how extensive that can be, how many different groups it does cover. Can you go in a little bit more yes. detail what that means in that beautiful world of diversity and the melting pot that we're still waiting for? <laughs> I, I think my my experience speaks to it. Um, when I first got to Apple, I joined the Black at Apple, which is an employee research group um, for obviously Black employees from the Black diaspora. And um, I was focused on talent. So for an ERG, we're focused just on that community. And there were other communities there, like Pride, which is for LGBTQ. There was Amigos. There was all these other groups, right, depending on how people identify. So when I moved into my role as a DEI uh, program manager, I actually had to shift my thinking. I was no longer focused on one community, right? I was focusing, again, on inclusion, everyone. So I had to actually make a kind of shift in how can I ensure that those who have been marginalized, you know, uh, marginalized still you know, be able to get the same benefits, same access, while also engaging the company as a whole. So it, it's a little tricky, but I feel like there are times when we really got it right. Oh, so what do you mean by that when companies get it right? What does that look like to you? Um, what, what I think, like? yeah, I think what it, it looks right when 
um, all the different groups actually merged. Like I mentioned, when I was Apple, we had all these different ERGs. And instead of, let's say, Black at Apple or Network Pride saying, hey, we're just going to talk about us, we shared best practices. We shared and co-sponsored events together because we knew we were focused on the same thing, equity, right? Belonging, inclusion. So it wasn't about, hey, if one group is focused on their community, they're only uplifting others. No, the success of an ERG over here is going to build up the success of an ERG over there, right? There's, it's not a, um, you know, one person over the other. And so that's when we really, I felt, started getting it right is when we just started helping each other grow, right? But we still, you know, took care of our communities, made sure everyone felt like they had a safe, brave space to show up. And that's important. And a lot of times I feel like people say the word safe space or you can, um, or it's almost like I'm getting ready to say something wrong. This is a safe space, right? <laughs> and you're like, wait, is this a... Um, I'm not going to get canceled for this, am I? For, mm. like, that doesn't mean you get to continually say bad things, but it also means there's a way to ask the questions without it being um, so nuanced, with, with it being something that could be canceled or, or, you know, in that sense as well. How do you recommend people opening up to those questions without yes. it being offensive? Because, yeah, you can't touch my hair, but maybe you could ask me questions that would open to me up of why that's a problem. Um, so it's so interesting you, you touched on the safe space. I actually have a course um, webinar called Moving from Safe to Brave Spaces. And the concept is, is when you're talking about diversity or anything social justice, any passionate topic, can you really be safe in that environment? And the thing is, the answer is actually no. Because everyone, no matter how they identify, is going to at some point feel uncomfortable. Let's say a white man is in that room. He may feel uncomfortable because he's expecting people to judge him or he's afraid he's going to stumble over his words. Um, a black woman may feel unsafe because she's like, I've never been safe in my life. So excuse me if I don't believe this. You know, So it, depending on how you identify or especially intersectionality changes things too. Safety looks different. So I push towards a narrative of bravery, but to have brave conversations, it starts with ourselves. Before we go into a room to discuss these topics, we need to be thinking about what does respect actually look to me? How can I express to others how to respect me? Um, what triggers me and why do I get triggered like that? So that when I go into a meeting and hey, I get triggered, things happen, I can take a step back and pause and understand where my feelings are coming from, where I'm sitting. So a lot of the work that has to be done to create these brave spaces is actually internal, right? And if all of us worked internally, when we can't come in, we'd be able to have, you know, a shared vocabulary, be able to have that respect, that knowledge and talk without being, you know, fearful that we're going to lose our jobs or that someone's going to look down upon us. So it really starts from within is what I found. Yeah. Now, I don't know how much you can disclose, but <laughs> your I mean, because I mean, if you're if you are following the news by any means, you're seeing how there's tons of layoffs happening. And it seems to be that it's predominantly or not predominantly, but a lot of areas that are feeling that the most is the DEI um, jobs, the DEI, like all of that. So how are you received in what? What can companies do to better support the DEI person or the DEI group? Because usually it's not just one if they're good at it. How, do, how can they better support that position too? Right. I mean, if, if anyone watching goes to LinkedIn right now and just puts in diversity and equity or DEI, um, there's going to be so many wonderful thought leaders who are talking about this right now. And what I've been hearing and what I've been seeing is that honestly, it's, it's sad. In 2020, all these companies made these statements that we're going to focus on this. We're going to build up the community. We're going to make you feel safe. We're going to make sure that you have access to opportunities. And within less than three years, what happened? Layoffs. And layoffs will typically happen to people of color because of where they fit in the hierarchy. Um, a lot of DEI because they tend to be an HR or some random organization because they're just kind of thrown together. And so... A lot of people, from what I've seen, lost their jobs. Um, I I remember deciding in October 
um, was I going to stay at Apple or leave? I had to make a decision for myself. It was, and I just felt something was happening in the workspace. It was just, I just had this feeling. And I was like, I don't think I have the bandwidth to sit and wait for a company to tell me that they're not committed anymore. Like, I don't, I won't be able to handle that. <laughs> so I decided to actually take, to come out of corporate America in advance so that I could focus on doing DEI, um, diversity work where I can show up and be authentic, right? Without being scared, I'm going to say the wrong thing or I'm going to lose my job or I'm at the bottom of the totem pole. And honestly, that's what I've been seeing a lot with, um, especially Black women in these roles. They're all going solo, right? So there is, I think, another side to this. There's a gaining side that people are like, well, you know what? I already know I'm valuable. I proved it there. I don't need to prove it anymore. Let me show people on my own. And that's kind of what I've taken. Um, and that's what I'm doing right now. How can we better promote diversity, equity, inclusion in the workplace and schools? There are several strategies that can be effective. So can you share some of those? Um, oh, my goodness. I think there is so... Um, many different ways. The first thing I always tell people is they cannot measure the impact of what they're doing if they've never um, did an assessment of what their current state is. I look at this like program project management. This is still a business when we're doing this inside of a company. Um, so have you actually looked at what you've done over the last three, five, five years? Have you written it down? Do you know what, how many people have came in that may fit underneath the diversity label? Do you know how many people um, left because they were having issues around diversity? Like, what have you been tracking, right? And until you start tracking, right, how can you decide if you actually moved the needle and went anywhere? And what I find is that most companies are afraid to track. I mean, I even worked in a company that there was no data points. So I did a lot of my work without knowing any numbers, right? I had to create opportunities for me to get data <laughs> to support my teams because companies just are like, a, there's no transparency. So it's about making sure you have some data, even the most minimum, and being transparent with it, sharing it with others. And I think the second part is listen to the people who represent those um, those identities. There's so many times that there's like, it's Women's History Month. Yes, last month was Black History Month. So many of these events are done not by the people who it's being represented, right? So people, there's, there's yes. <laughs> Let's go. <laughs> pin that for later. I just want to make sure I don't forget. Go ahead. Sorry. Yes. Yeah, so, uh, and there's even, I've seen so many types of museums and, um, and entertainment broadcasts that are built and designed to promote like the, the black community, the uh, Hispanic Latinx community and so forth. But the people in the room making the decisions don't look like them, don't identify like them. Right. So decision makers don't actually know what's up. So I think a lot of it is humility, um, understanding that you don't know it all and that there are people in your company right now that can help you, right? They can help you. They can start. Um, and, but the other piece to this is if you're going to ask people to help them, help you, are you going to pay them? And that's one of the biggest things right now is people who are in, in employer resource groups, uh, they're on these um, diversity task force and councils, they're not getting paid. Or, and some, sometimes they're not even um, being able to use it on their performance review at the end of the year. Their managers don't include it as a reason for them to get a promotion or a bonus, right? Like this is the reality of how DI professionals <laughs> Are treated. Yeah. I already cut you off, but I just need to rewind back up. Wait, what? So, not only are we usually in every black or I would say every other household, you're always taught you have to work twice as hard to get the position. But not only are you going to now have to work twice as hard, now you're going to have to work double as many jobs and for less pay because it is Women's History Month. So, we yep. do know that there is a, a huge gap in even how much money you make compared to. Um, a white male. So when we add all those factors in, why would someone even want to put themselves in the chopping block to be a representative? And maybe that's why so many of these diversity coaches tend to, or the ones that actually work at some of these corporations yep. tend to not look diverse at all. I, I was just looking at an event recently where there, uh, 
it was supposed to be a diversity and inclusion event. And everybody on the panel was seemingly white looking, or at least very mm -hmm. pale. And I, of course you can't tell if somebody's gay. I don't feel like they should have to wear a rainbow or a trans. Mm -hmm. I mean, you don't have to do all of that or even put your pronouns out there if you're not in a safe space. I get all of that. So that's a lot of, of that. How do you know you're supporting something, a company that's diverse? How do you know that their diversity officer really does have the best interest in mind when maybe they don't look like that, but maybe because I had this conversation where I kind of got annoyed with a certain, he was a black male, um, where he felt he was comfortable enough to talk about the gay community because of his, <clears throat> he has a gay daughter. So he knew how to represent that community as a straight black man. And I'm like, I get using your privilege to shine a spotlight on somebody else that can move that mm -hmm. conversation forward. But how dare you? <laughs> is what my thought. So how do you, how do you even address that or um, fix or on a corporate level, fix that? If you're not going to get paid for it, you're going to be on a higher chopping block. <laughs> it's the first to get cut. Like why would anyone want to do that? And maybe that's why you decided to do it on your own. So you could do those contract basis. So you don't have to worry about the chopping block, but. I went on a tangent, so please. No, you touched you touched on so many points. I, I got I got words. So first of all, chief diversity officers tend to only keep stay in their jobs two to three years. What gets done in two to three years? Especially in large companies, you spend the first year just politicking, right? Navigating the system, letting people know your face. So burnout is real. Um, I know personal experience. Last year, last June, I burned out completely doing this work to the point I didn't even know I was burned out. My manager, I must have said something crazy. My manager looked at me and said, Yvonne, you need to go on leave. And I'm like, no, 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 I don't need to go on leave because I got to do this. I'm going to do this. It doesn't matter what I'm feeling. I'm going to get through it. Like I was just, I thought it was natural just to keep moving and who cares what I'm feeling. And she said, no. And let me tell you, that woman saved my life. Right. Talk about allyship. Right. And I took time out. I took about two and a half months. Do you know the first month I spent just angry? I spent the whole time angry, just angry. <laughs> because I felt like me working in corporate America. I finally got to see behind the, the curtain. I was able to see what really happens. And I was so disappointed. Right. I was just so disappointed that people like me were doing all this work and we get pushed back or people are trying to, you know, get us thrown out. All these things happen to us when we're in these environments and it's true and it's real. And so I had to do a lot of soul searching to realize that I still wanted to continue this work. And I asked this question at an event last week with DEI practitioners. Why, if we get so upset, why do we continue doing it? And my answer was, I do it for my daughter, right? Um, the, 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 the cruise boat has failed for me. I've already been defeated. I've been fired. I've been mistreated, like discriminated. I've gone through that. But my daughter, the youth, the future, they have an opportunity not to have to do that, right? So, and my ancestors, those voices I read during that month that I was angry, Audrey Lord, um, you know, all these people, they did this under worse circumstances than I am, right? I'm I'm sitting in my house, right? <laughs> Unbothered, unconcerned, air conditioning, and my degrees behind you at schools that used right. to not let us in. Right, exactly. And so I don't think I have the choice. Um, for me, not everyone has to make this choice, but I decided to take on that burden. Right. And it is a burden. No one wants to put in this work. No one wants to be burnt in. But what I do this time around is I set boundaries and I ensure that any diversity work that I do, it follows this one guideline. And it's, it's the name of a book called The Bridge Called My Back. So I say if an organization or individuals want to use me as their bridge to humanity because they can't put in any of the work themselves, I, I'm out. However, if a company is like, hey, we have um, executive sponsors, we have groups, but we just hit a wall and we don't know where we're going, hello, call me, right? So that's how I decide. If you're going to use me as a way to just cover up what you're unable to do, what you're unable to accept or recognize, that's not 
how I'm going to be able to survive this work. So, but it took a while to get here and I'm still in a healing process. And I think so many other DI practitioners are also healing from the last few years. Yeah. Can you mind speaking a little bit about that? And then we're going to go to our next topic, just because I think it's so important because I, even last night I was at a, a NABJ had a conversation last night about burnout for reporters and it hit on so many things. I was just like, wow, they really go. I mean, they're tough. They're, they're talking those tough topics every day and they're covering yeah. it out in the streets. They're dealing with the protests and like the newsrooms that's not supporting their stories because there's not a lot of diversity in the newsroom as well behind the camera, which is where those decisions get made on what gets actually aired and what doesn't. Cause I, I hear a lot of times that these black reporters, they are trying to pitch stories that are not us just being the uh, criminal, <laughs> but also these positive stories and they don't always make it cause it's one mm-hmm. of those rules. If it bleeds, it leads. And you know, so I'm curious for you when it, when you're going through this burnout or if you can even sense it coming, what do you do or what do you suggest for other people in your field, how to handle that? Obviously I wouldn't necessarily go with my go-to of Hollywood movies because maybe, maybe they'll trigger you. I don't know. <laughs> I'm curious. How do you, how do you decompress after all of that? Um, I think the first, the first thing that really helped me honestly is when my manager looked at me and was like, hey, something's up. <laughs> you need to go work on you. The first thing I did was I found a black doctor, female doctor, and a black female therapist. And I believe that's the reason that my healing process went so quickly. Even my, my therapist was like, whoa, like you went from, I, can't, I don't want to ever go back to work to, okay, I can do this and I can quit my job and I can continue doing it as a consultant on my own with a baby. Like it just was like this huge shift, right? But I have to say it was because of the black woman supporting me from a medical and mental health standpoint, because I didn't have to talk to them about the nuances of being black, right? We could, or the nuances of having a black family or a generational trauma. They already knew. So I could actually get to the core of what was going on inside of me, which allowed me to build on that. And then my community of, um, honestly, black women, Right. Um, they they got me through. They really did get me through. They were there for me, especially having a daughter living somewhere about family all the time. Um, they supported me in this effort. And I, the other piece of it is gardening. <laughs> we always. So when I was pre- I was pregnant during COVID, you know, I know we're going to get to that. But the way I I knew working at Apple during COVID while pregnant was going to be stressful. I was even on the COVID response team, ensuring that every single store, corporate location in the world was receiving PPE gear. So I worked over four time zones, 24 hours a day, right? And I was I'm pregnant and hadn't told anyone. So um, I knew I had to put something in place to ensure that my daughter was not feeling that stress. And that she would come out as zen as possible because there was nothing zen about me before <laughs> three years ago. And so gardening became my thing. It was actually um, container gardening because I was still living in California. I had, only had a little small balcony. And it was something about putting my hands into the dirt. you know. And I think that's something that you see a lot of Black folks doing right now is getting back to the farming and, and the fresh food and gardening and planting. And it was something about growing life inside of me while I was growing life from, you know, in my garden. I would just talk to it. One plant was about to die. I was just like, you know what? We're going to do this. How you doing today? Like it just it just did something to me. So I would say for my self care, gardening is my thing. Um, I'm not that great at it. I'm still figuring it out. But I think we all have to have that one thing that just brings us to a point where we can breathe again. No, and I love that. And perfect segue from plant mom to single mom by <laughs> For those who need to catch up, <laughs> we are going to talk about this next. So um, I I feel like there's been a lot of conversations about this this year, as opposed to many years before, where I felt like no one ever shared anything. You just would hear about IVF or um, freezing my eggs, like on these different reality shows, but not really understand what that meant or why, what's an embryo, what's, the, you know, like 
I went back to science class, so I know. But um, for those <laughs> of us who don't know, I really would like for you to share, like, what was some of the, I guess, some of the parts of becoming a single mom by choice that is all like, maybe represented in media and so forth that you found to not be true at all? Or just what was it really like as opposed to what how they portray it on TV? Or, I mean, obviously documentaries do a better job, but yeah, yeah. in the yeah, overall, what was it like for you, especially as a black woman and being a DEI expert? Yes. I'm sure you can tell <laughs> different things. So for, for those who may not understand the nuance nuance of um, by choice, it means that I used a donor <laughs> to, to have my child instead of doing it within a relationship. And for me, people always ask me why I didn't have kids or why I'm not in a relationship right, you know, right now. Um, I'm divorced, so I, I've had a ring. <laughs> I've been engaged again. I've done that, but life was busy. I had to get some degrees. Um, I've traveled the world. Like I was having fun with my friends. I was healing. I was busy, right? So I didn't get a chance to really sit and build that relationship with a person who I would want to be as a father. So by the time I got into my mid to late thirties, I really started feeling as if. I was rushing relationships with the priority, can they be a father? Not, do I get along with them? Well, you know, will they help me as a person grow? What do we have in common? It was all about, like, my me having a kid. And I just said to myself, Yvonne, you have never done anything in chronological order, ever. Like, I literally, you know, late going to college, all these things. Why are you going to set yourself at this old age to have to have a child in chronological order? So I made a decision to have my daughter on my own. Um, I was living in Chicago at the time. Since I was, I think, 38, 39, my OBGYN, she said, uh, you're going to be the real doctors, the fertility clinic. I'm not even messing with you. <laughs> so they, I went straight to fertility clinic. I did IUI, two IUIs um, when I came to California. The second IUI, unfortunately, IUI. ended up. Yeah, IUI. That's when um, you, what is it? You just insert the sperm inside of you naturally. You just hope the sperm and the egg meet somewhere in there. Versus IVF. They actually, yeah, turkey baster, turkey baster. But the doctor does it. And it, it, it's the quickest, it's the quickest quickie ever. It's literally like three seconds. And you're like, well. That wasn't that interesting, <laughs> but that's to the side, that's to the side. Uh, so my second IUI um, ended up in a miscarriage, in an ectopic miscarriage. So I actually lost one of my fallopian tubes. And this was uh, two months before COVID hit. So I was going through a lot of grief about that, hated my body. I was so mad that it did it to me. Um, it was a very dark dark period of time right um i thought i just felt as a woman for a while um and then i was able to eventually get to ivf once clinics reopened and i was able to have my daughter um i they retrieved nine eggs because i didn't have that many i'm, I'm <laughs> at the time i was 40 so they only retrieved nine eggs they were able to get three to um outside of the womb to uh actually you know, turn into a blastocyst embryo. And we put in two. So I just knew I was having twins, twin boys, in fact. And instead I had one girl. <laughs> and I still have like one. In science, you can't plan it. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. I was, I, was, I was like, when the doctor's like, oh, I see one heartbeat. I was like, can you look again? I'm trying to get this done. Look again. He's like, no, man. So I had my daughter again during COVID, but it was actually fantastic because no one had to see me. I could plan my day if I didn't feel well. No one had to know. And it's been, she's two as of last month. And ah, I do, it's the best decision I've ever had. Being a older mom has so many perks, right? I was raised by an 18-year-old. So honestly, probably 17, 18-year-old. So I wasn't expecting, I didn't know what motherhood was going to look like. And it's totally different than what my expectations was. I and I'm just excited to watch her grow. But it also means I have to live forever. So I'm going to have to do something. <laughs> my daughter's my driving force as well. That's why I do what I do. Much like what you said earlier, that's why I give voice to people. That's why I do the stories. I mean, because I want the world to be better. I want 
And I feel like a lot of times entertainment, because it is in everyone's homes, it is on everyone's TVs or iPods or iPhones or whatever, that I have that opportunity to really get more voices out there to start realizing, hey, there are several different Americas here and let's try to make it just one where we can all Mm -hmm. get that um, pursuit of happiness, like they say. And one thing that when you were speaking earlier, I wanted to talk a little bit more about the donor process because I know you were talking about what it was like when you were dating, you were looking for a father and a mate. And because I already know, you didn't use a date <laughs> as a donor. You went through <laughs> the whole, I get to pick my own baby daddy. So what was that process like? Because um, oh. I saw the Ebony K. Williams interview where she goes through the fact that there was different kinds of binders where there was um, in different levels of engagement with those binders as well. So there was like, um, I guess the, I'll do it, A-level budget where maybe, let's say it's 30000 I don't remember the numbers, but, and for that, you would get maybe a high school graduate and um, was really good at trade or um, would have no interaction with your child and um, would never get pictures or something to that effect. And then the next level, it was a little bit more, you could pick like what they were good at, what level of education, what they look like, what kind of structure if they were tall or short like you had those different personalizations I guess in a way that you could make the perfect man for your child or perfect father donor for your child so what were some of the things that were your need to have and what were some of the things that you felt like they kind of lacked maybe as a DI agent or excuse me expert that they should include more on that side of things as well if you have any that you would like to share with that yeah, I always tell people, they're like, well, how did you choose? I'm like, there's an online catalog. <laughs> like, legitimately, I didn't, I, I, when, at this point, there were no binders. It was literally, you go online, you, you research through it. Honestly, um, you, yeah, you just, it's kind of like Tinder, swipe, it, you know, it's, it's a lot more intimate, but that's what you decide. But I, I had certain parameters. One, I had genetic testing done before I went through the process of choosing. And it turned out that I had two genetic markers and that I was like an alpha marker that had not impacted me as a person. Like I had no effects or symptoms, but if I, um, the paternal donor, um, had the same ones, my daughter could really come out with some bad issues, especially around, you know, blood and stuff like that. And I didn't want to play with it. So that, honestly wiped out a huge significant of the population of men on all the different um uh sperm banks and there's a, there's several of them in the states as well as overseas and it really took out the number of black men that was available to me as well there's already a low number of black men who do um participate in being a donor so then with my genetic makeup, I had to shift. So that was a big thing. And me being really, you know, this in the air, uh, diversity, you know, black community, it was weird. Cause I was like, wait a minute, I'm not going to have a black child. Like what, I mean, what, what is, what is, what is it doing? So I really had to start thinking about other, um, characteristics. And for me, honestly, height, I will say that height would matter. I come a fam- from a family of, um, of giant, so I just wanted her to have a chance <laughs> and not be not be the shortest cousin in the family, right? Um, and then it was their personalities. You see, there's videos, there's pictures of them as youth. Um, mine did not have pictures as an adult, but there were pictures of the youth, the youth age, um, all the way up to maybe fourteen or so. Um, they had their voice interview. They talk and they write letters about their family and how they grew up. So her donor ended up having is of an Asian background, um, and um, and I wanted someone who didn't come from a life of privilege. I don't know. For me, I just feel like our backgrounds just and our ancestors like stick along with us. So I wanted someone who may have had to work at what they did, right? Maybe it wasn't because of color or any of these things. And so this person that I found, he's temperament his voice the way he looked at life and the fact that he overcame i just felt like those are qualities you know my daughter would want um you know he also is a chemistry major does piano does um (laughs) he's a martial art art, um, person so there's a lot of things out there but um it 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 took a while but at the end of the day honestly it was eating me my mouth 
between two people. It was between the person who I talked about and then there was another individual who said he wanted to teach his kids how to hunt. And just and it was like the, the <laughs> it was a lot. And I was like, no, I don't no, I'm good on this. Um but it eventually eventually you don't really care. We spend so much time just thinking, can we find a perfect paternal donor? And then at the end, all you want is a healthy baby or just a baby. Right. So I don't really even think too much about um, the individual. I have this information. Um, I'm using an, uh, it's called kind of open as in when she's 18, she gets this information. Um, she has, she does have siblings. I, I am in touch with the mother. So like there, she does have a future that's not going to be um, a secret. Right. And I'm learning from different groups, like there's Mocha SMBC on Facebook and other groups, how to navigate this, right? She's only two, but this conversation is going to start coming up. Um, but I will tell you this, the funniest thing is when I pick her up from daycare, she goes, mommy, daddy, <laughs> that, that's her name, or it's just daddy. And daycare thinks it's the funniest thing. They wait to see what she's going to call me in this dad. So she's already figured out that I'm her mom and her dad is... She's perfectly fine with that. Yeah. Oh, well, that's wonderful. I want to kind of just cut, touch on this because I want to be mindful of your time and we are getting way past the 30 minute mark. Um, do you have a, 10 more minutes or so? Yeah, yeah, sure. Okay, perfect, perfect. Um, so I, I have, have to ask you this because I too have a multiracial daughter and grew up multicultural because I grew up um, in Europe and then moved to America and did not had no clue about colorism, had no clue about racism still existing in America because I was overseas and just kind of idolized the idea that America was this great big melting pot, I mean melting pot, and that, um, you know, there was cowboys on on um, Dallas and then there was Dynasty. I'm totally to showing my age, but I, I know, I know. <laughs> I think there's new versions of that. So just pretend it's that one. Uh, <laughs> and, like there was all these elegant and just beautiful and it was just, Everybody got along. And then when I moved here, I found out very quickly that's not the case. And because I did grow up in Europe and most of the black people I saw, they were, that were around my age were mainly biracial because of the fathers or mothers being stationed somewhere other than America and falling in love with someone <laughs> from a different country because of where they lived or where they were stationed at their young age when most people start their families, well, at least in the eighties. Um, it was a big eye opener to come here. A, I thought I was dark skinned because of growing up being one of, I mean, both of my parents are black and um, having that issue to deal with, with colorism. And then it was so different when I had my daughter because I wanted to protect her from all of that. I didn't want people to just automatically assume she had white privilege because I saw firsthand that she didn't because she did have, um, we didn't have a strong relationship with my husband's side of the family. I mean, I don't have that the best with my own side anyway. I mean, we're all so far away in that sense. Not that we don't get along, but we're just, everyone's far. Um, and even on my husband's side, everyone's just far. So I wonder with you, like, how do you plan to talk to her? Cause she's still two, so it's early, but she is in school. So she, and the first time my daughter experienced racism was around your daughter's age. And it mm -hmm. completely gobsmacked me. I was not prepared. I was not ready. I felt she was way too young for this. We didn't need to have this conversation yet, but I found myself crying in the parking lot after it happened. So I wonder with you, like, when do you think you should start having those conversations with children and how do you plan to, I guess, help her navigate that not only as a black woman, but as an Asian woman and culture? girl, you got yes. a lot. Um, I know, I know. <laughs> right. there, so I'll stop. <laughs> so, um, Again, I'm a new mom, so I'm just learning how this works. But what I've seen so far is that, and especially in the case of my daughter, how she learns, it's through experience, exposure, and repetition, right? What she sees. So how you explain it to your children is based on her age. So what I've done right now is I know she loves by what she sees and she's exposed to. That's how she learns. So I have an entire hallway going up my steps that I call the Diversity Hall of Fame. And I have different color of, of women all along it, of different nationalities. So from a very from the time she was one and we moved in, we'd walk past that wall of diversity and I say, say hi. And she says hi to each of you know, 
this woman, that woman, all these people of different nationalities, right? Um, all the pictures in and around my house are of women of color and it's various colors and shades because all of us come in something different, right? So I didn't want her, you know, at a young age, I wanted her to understand that different shades is okay because she is lighter than I am right now, right? So uh, doing that is what's important to me. And then the other piece, it has to do with her daycare. It was very important to me that there was diversity there. And she goes to amazing daycare where her 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 um, caregiver right now, you know, was wears a head covering, right? Um, that it's it, it's owned by people of Indian descent. There's a black director. Um, different types of children come in there, so my daughter is seeing it on a daily basis. So, and she's just started talking. So now we'll start to you know use books and add vocabulary to it. But I really think we have to just through what they experience. Um, she just we should be building the culture that we want them to live in at home, and that's what I'm gonna do in my house. I'm gonna build the culture I want for her to have, but I'll be there along the way for the journey. Well, you just let me know when she's that American Girl doll age because I have every color. <laughs> my daughter has 26 of them, <laughs> and she's <now> 14, <laughs> and she is giving me permission. To ruin, you know, her, um, um, children. When she stops eating, when she stops eating the their toys, I'll let you know. She did not cut any of their hair. She was very delicate with all of them, so they're in great shape. <laughs> so I'm just like, not that. I don't have a delicate daughter. Okay. I don't have a delicate daughter. <laughs> I'm just letting you know when she gets of that age, because uh, but even in that, because in other words, you don't have to buy them because their diversity sucks. But moving on. And I think that's something that a lot of times when I had that issue with my parents where they couldn't find me a lot of different things, but my mom is an artist, so she mm -hmm. painted things like even my daughter's dollhouse has mm -hmm. representation mm -hmm. where it looks like her inside yes. and people are painted um, the right color and complexion for her to have that um, reflection. And it was important to me to buy her books and so on and have yep. all those things to match up to that. But I want to give a little segue to the fact that let's talk a little bit about Hot Topics and then we'll be done because I want to just talk about this one thing because it kind of surprised me when there was so much backlash yesterday about the Peter Pan, the new Peter Pan movie with Yara Shahida. I'm sure I just butchered her name because I'm doing it from memory and don't have it written in front of me where they were very upset about her playing Tinkerbell and it wasn't for the same reason that Chloe Bailey or Halle Bailey, I get them, Halle Bailey, I get them confused, um, is playing Ariel. They were more upset, it was coming from our community, black community, where they were upset that she was portraying a, a character that's already been played, it's already been blonde, instead of giving her own new character, because we, I mean, uh, you're, daughters to you um, young but the Tinkerbell fairy groups there was all different colors and it was fun yeah. and they, they just picked that person <laughs> instead of yeah so what are your thoughts about that what are you how do you navigate that with your own child as far as like figuring out what movies you will or will not let her see because of the fact that it could be more damaging and what did you think about the backlash as well so I grew up on Disney you know growing up my favorite Disney was um was actually Beauty and the Beast. Me and my family was seeing that to the top of our lungs throughout the house, you know, because I loved books. So it wasn't, I didn't see her as like a white character. I was just like, oh, she has a library, right? Like that's what was so exciting to me. And then, um, and then I, I used to love Peter Pan. Any Peter Pan, I just watch. It doesn't matter if it's a horrible version, you know, I'm gonna watch it. But I remember after I had my daughter, I was like, well, let me start watching Disney, especially now that we have Disney Plus. I started rewatching these Disney cartoons and I was like, whoo, there's a lot of <laughs> wrongness in here. Like Peter Pan, the way they, you know, they show indigenous and Native Americans. It's terrible. And then all before every cartoon that I grew up on, there's a, a blurb saying this may not be what we believe. So and it hurt me. Even the smoking. Um, what, like, Winnie the Pooh has a gun, he's shooting. You know, like, it's all these things. So I had to step to get that back. Constantly shooting. <laughs> right? And he scared yeah. the crap out of me. As a kid, I hated Elmer Fudd because it scared me so bad because I was a military kid and yes. trained at a very young age about the importance of safety of guns and this, that, because there's always a gun in your home. 
And so the idea that he was just constantly getting shot and his head would come up, he was just like, what? Like, it freaked me out. It was just like, this isn't, this isn't what I've been trained. <laughs> and this, and this, is what, this is what we watched, right? And we were happy to do it. So now I will say. propaganda in it, too. So. Yes. I will say that, yes, I would love to see more, especially as a Black individual, uh, more Black people, more uh, topics in entertainment and more um, things that we're seen in. But when I think about when I grew up, I didn't have, there was only like one black stuff doll and that was from the Hug a Bunch. It wasn't even like Cabbage Patch dolls or something. It was like random. Um, I don't really remember having black Barbie dolls, maybe one perhaps. Um, I didn't have books. I had like, red outfit. Yeah, I mean, yes, I was an avid book reader, but until I was 15, 16, there was no brown representation, black and brown representation in my books. Um, So I think it's amazing that my daughter sees diversity no matter what. Is it at the level that it should be? No, right? But I will say that it's such a... To like know that he knows people come in different shades. To know that there's a curly haired person on PBS Kids. Like I'm gonna take those wins because I know my ancestors never believed it was possible. Right? My grandmother, my great grandmother, never believed it was possible for us to be here. But what it does mean is that we can't stop. We don't just accept this. So I think people's anger and upset is valid. Right? It's valid. It's deserved sometimes. But as someone who knows that you can get so caught up in diversity and racism till that it burns you out and consumes you, I'm learning I have to put boundaries on how I um, react to these things. If not, I will be consumed by hatred and anger, and I won't be able to provide the joy that I want my daughter to be receiving and when, as she grows up. Yeah, fair. Yeah, love it. Well, um, since it is Women's History Month, we did want to like shout out some women-owned brands. Yes. Uh, so I know since you're the guest, go ahead and share a little bit about what you brought today for your <laughs> Women's History Month show and tell. <laughs> and, so, uh, yes. I, when you said bring something, I was like, say yes, less. I, I got it. So I love skincare products. Oh my goodness. I, especially now that I'm 43, I got to take, like I said, I have to live forever right now because I got to go pick her up from school for the rest of my life. Um, so I love brands that take care are built for women and that are built for women of color. And one of my favorite brands is called Edom. And Edom is Latin for um, same or all. And I'm going to read this straight from their website is that they're not saying that all women are, are monoliths and we're the same, but that we do share invisible bonds and our stories bind us together because we do have some things that we share as just women in general. So this is like a milk marble dark spot serum and it's created for people who have some melanin, right? And it's actually all levels of melanin, is um, all shades of melanin. And so this is one of my favorite things I use just to kind of help at nighttime to keep the complexion, you know, nice and bright and, and as clear as possible. So definitely Edom, it's a woman-owned brand. Um, I definitely would recommend people looking out for their products. Fantastic. And I have the link in the comments as well, so you can check them out. And I went to their website, and first thing I see is a very dark-skinned Asian-looking woman. So already I'm a fan. <laughs> um, uh, I went a little overboard because I couldn't pick just one. And my mom gave me this garden bag, and I was like, what in the 1900s? Like, how did you find this? Where is it from? And she's like, you know, you gave me a gift in this a long time ago, and I kept it. So a little reminder of Arden B going back in time. Okay. okay. <laughs> but I did my entire makeup today with women-owned brands. So, of course, the mm -hmm. Pat McGrath, uh, um, Charlotte Tillsbury, mm -hmm. Glow General, um, Glow Beauty Skincare. I love them. Uh, Laura Mercier is my blush. Juvia is my brows. Juvia. Juvia. Let's talk about Juvia eyebrow palettes. The palettes. I have all, like 10 of them. Yes. I am a big like $5, $15. It's, I, 
It's ridiculous. I just buy them all. Yes. Mm-hmm. It's like a bookcase of palettes. <laughs> I have the same one. They can't hear the show. Yep, because I used to have them in my drawers and I kept breaking them, and now I know why because they were just mm-hmm. rattling around in the box as opposed to making it like my own makeup. Yeah. Well, this has been such a wonderful conversation. Oops, let me put you back up here with me. Um, this has been such a wonderful conversation. We have talked about so many things from diversity, equity, and inclusion to what's it like to be a mom by choice. And I have loved every. It's wonderful. I have to have you back. Um, everyone, please make sure that you're following Yvonne Jackson. I put her website in the comments as well. You can see it right now scrolling on my screen. So you definitely can follow her, follow up with her. And she does offer a free thing on her website. You can get your own little free download when you go there. We know we live a free thing. (laughs) So, um, last thoughts, anything you would like to share before we head off? No, I think what all I want to share is that I think as, as black women, as women in general, that if we to spend our time finding as much joy as possible, right? The world, it can be crazy and it can take it from us. So for 2023, that's my goal is how can I continue finding joy? How can I share joy? And as women, how do we share it back and forth? It shouldn't just be a take-take, but it should be a mutual, right? existence. So that's what I ask for all the women this month is how can you give to others as much as they give to you and just see how karma just comes your way from it. Fantastic. Thank you again for being my guest today. I cannot thank you enough for yeah. letting us go in deep into your life and share all the safe spaces. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> It was such a pleasure. And everyone out there, thank you again for joining me. This is only episode two. So if you missed episode one, which was amazing with Tommy Davidson, and it was, he talks a little bit about diversity as well. So this might be a trend. Um, But next week, I'll have a brand new episode. I'm not sure yet if it's going to be live or not. So you'll see depending on how today's work really. (laughs) So thanks everyone for joining me. Make sure you follow along. You, Yvonne Jackson's information is in the chat as well as on the screen. I will be posting more later. Make sure you check out my website, camillecoward.com, for more information. And if you have any questions or concerns, make sure you follow up. Um, I will be looking through the comments and answering when I can. And I'm sure Yvonne, if you tag her, she will too. So anyway, thank you everyone for watching today. Make sure you like, share and comment and save and do all the analytic stuff that makes sure that you get to see this every week (laughs) and you get notified first when a new episode is starting. And thanks again for watching. Make sure you share this with your friends and it'll be on podcast maybe tomorrow, maybe today. I'm a mom. I got a life. I work. So you'll just see it when you see it. (laughs) I appreciate all of you support and I appreciate you, Yvonne Jackson, for joining us and talk off air about who your doctor is because I may need to go to her too. (laughs) All right. (laughs) Again, have a great day. Have a great night. Happy Women's History Month and I'll see you again next week on Thursdays at 12 or 7 p.m. So. Pay attention to see. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.